Section 8 of Just 16. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Claire. Just 16 by Susan Coolidge. Under a Syringa Bush. The old syringa at the foot of the Wade's lawn was rather a tree than a bush. Many years of growth had gone to the thickening of its interlaced boughs, which grew close to the ground and made an impervious covert, except on the west side, where a hollow recess existed, into which a small person, boy or girl, might squeeze and be quite hidden. Sundry other small persons with wings and feathers had discovered the advantages of the syringa. All manner of unsuspected housekeepings went on within its fastnesses, from the lark's nest in a tuft of grass at the foot of the main stem, to the robin's home on the topmost bough. Solicitous little mothers brooded unseen over minute families, while the highly decorative bird papa sat on a neighbouring hedge, carrying out his mission, which seemed to be to distract attention from the secreted family by the sweetness of his song and the beauty of his plumage. In the dusk of the evening, soft thrills and twitters sounded from the bush like whispered conversation, and very entertaining it must have been, no doubt, to anyone who understood the language. So, altogether, the old syringa bush was an interesting little world of itself. Ellie Wade found it so, as she sat in the green hiding-place on the west side, crying as if her heart would break. The syringa recess had been her favourite secret ever since she discovered it nearly two years before. No one else knew about it. There she went when she felt unhappy or was having a mood. Once the boughs had closed in behind her, no one could suspect that she was there, a fact which gave her infinite pleasure, for she was a child who loved privacies and mysteries. What are moods? Does anyone exactly understand them? Some people attribute them to original sin, others to nerves or indigestion, but I am not sure that either explanation is right. They sweep across the gladness of our lives as clouds across the sun, and seem to take the colour out of everything. Grown people learn to conceal, if not to conquer their moods, but children cannot do this, Ellie Wade least of all. As I said, this was no means her first visit to the syringa bush. It was witnessed some stormy moments in her life, when she sat there hot and grieved, and in her heart believing everybody cruel or unjust. Rolf had teased her, or Cora, who was older than she, had put on airs, or little Kitty had been troublesome, or some schoolmate hateful. She even accused her mother of unkindness at these times, though she loved her dearly all the while. She thinks the rest are always right and I wrong, she would say to herself. Oh well, she'll be sorry some day. What was to make Mrs. Wade sorry, Ellie did not specify, but I think it was to be when she herself was found dead, somewhere on the premises, of a broken heart. Ellie was very fond of depicting this broken heart and tragical ending. Imaginative children often are. All the same, if she felt ill or cut her finger, she ran to Mamma for help, and was as much frightened as if she had not been thinking these deadly thoughts only a little while ago. Today, Ellie had fled to the syringa bush with no idea of ever coming out again. A great wrong had been done her. Cora was going with a yachting party, and she was not. Mamma had said she was too young to be trusted and must wait till she was older and steadier. It is cruel, she said with a fresh burst of sobs, as she recalled the bitter moment when she heard the verdict. It was just as unkind as it could be for her to say that. 
Cora is only four years the oldest, and I can do lots of things that she can't. She doesn't even know a bit about crocheting. She just knits. And she never made sponge cake, and I have. And when she rows, she pulls the hardest with her left hand and makes the boat wobble. I've a much better stroke than she has. Papa said so. And I can swim just as well as she can. Nobody loves me, was her next reflection. Nobody at all. They all hate me. I don't suppose anybody would care a bit if I did die. But this thought was too hard to be borne. Yes, they would, she went on. They'd feel remorse if I'd died, and they ought to. Then they would recollect all the mean things they had done to me, and they would groan and say, Too late, too late, like the bad people in storybooks. Comforted by this idea, she resolved on a plan of action. I'll just stay here forever and not come out at all. Of course I shall starve to death. Then all summer long they'll be hunting and wondering and wondering what has become of me, and when the autumn comes and the leaves fall off, they'll know, and they'll say, Poor Ellie, how we wish we treated her better. She settled herself into a more comfortable position. It isn't necessary to have cramps, you know, even if you are starving to death, and went on with her reflections. So still was she that the birds forgot her presence, and continued their twittering gossip and their small domestic arrangements undisturbed. The lark talked to her young ones with no fear of being overheard. The robins flew in and out with worms. The thrush, who occupied what might be called the second story of the syringa, disciplined a refractory fledgling, and Papa Thrush joined in with a series of musical expostulations. Ellie found their affairs so interesting that for a moment she forgot her own, which was good for her. A big bumblebee came sailing through the air like a wind-blown drum, and stopped for a minute to sip at a syringa blossom. Next, a soft whirr drew Ellie's attention, and a shape in green and gold and ruby red glanced across her vision like a flying jewel. It was a hummingbird, the first of the season. Ellie had never been so near one before, nor had so long a chance to look, and she watched with delight as the pretty creature darted to and fro, dipping its needle-like bill into one flower cup after another in search of the honey drop which it each contained. She held her breath, not to startle it, but its fine senses seemed to perceive her presence in some mysterious fashion, and presently it flew away. Ellie's mind, no longer diverted, went back to its unhappiness. I wonder how long it is since I came here, she thought. It seems like a great while. I guess it must be as much as three hours. They're all through dinner now and beginning to wonder where I am, but they won't find me. I can tell them. She set her lips firmly and again shifted her position. At the slight rustle every bird in the bush became silent. They needn't, she said to herself. I wouldn't hurt them. I'm not like Rolf. He's real bad to birds sometimes. Once he took some eggs out of a dear, cunning little song-sparrow's nest and blew the yolks. I'd never do such a mean thing as that. But though she tried to lash herself up to her old sharpness of feeling, the interruption of wrathful thoughts had somewhat soothed her mood. Still, she heard firmly to her purpose, while an increasing drowsiness crept over her. I shall stay here all night, she thought, and all tomorrow, and tomorrow night, and then a yawn. Pretty soon I shall be dead, I suppose, and they'll be sorry. Another yawn. And Ellie was asleep. When she woke, the bright noon sunshine had given place to a dusky light, which made the syringa recess very dark. The robins had discovered her whereabouts, 
and hopping nearer and nearer, had perched upon a branch close to her feet, and were talking about her. She was dimly conscious of their voices, but had no idea what they were saying. "'Why did it come here, anyway?' asked Mrs. Robin. "'A great heavy thing like that in our bush?' "'I don't know, I'm sure,' replied Mr. Robin. "'It makes a strange noise, but it keeps its eyes shut while it makes it.' "'These great creatures are so queer,' pursued Mrs. Robin. "'There, it's beginning to move. I wish it would go away. I don't like its being so near the children.' They might see it and be frightened. The two birds flitted hastily off as Ailie stretched herself and rubbed her eyes. A very uncomfortable gnawing sensation began to make itself evident. It wasn't exactly pain, but Ailie felt that it might easily become so. She remembered now that she had fled away from the table, leaving her breakfast only half finished yesterday morning. Was it yesterday, or was it the day before that? It felt a long time ago. The sensation increased. Dear me, thought Ellie, the storybooks never said that starving to death felt so. I don't like it a bit. Bravely she fought against discomfort, but it gained upon her. She began to meditate whether her family had perhaps not been sufficiently punished. I've been away a whole day, she reflected, and a whole night, and I guess they felt badly enough. Very likely they've sat up waiting for me to come back. They'll be sorry they acted so. And, anyway, I'm so dreadfully hungry that I must have something to eat. And I want to see Mamma, too. Perhaps she'll have repented and will say, Poor Ellie, she may go. In short, Ellie was seized with a sudden desire for home, and, always rapid in decision, she lost no time in wriggling herself out of the bush. There, it's gone, chirped the female robin. I'm glad of it. I hope it will never come back. Very cautiously, Ellie crept through the shrubbery on to the lawn. It still seemed dark, but now she perceived that the gloom came from a great thundercloud which was gathering overhead. She could not see the sun, and, confused with her long sleep, was not able to make out what part of the day it was. But somehow she felt that it was not the early morning, as in the bush she had supposed. Across the lawn she stole, and upon the piazza no one was visible. The open window showed the dining-table set for something. Was it tea? Upstairs she crept, and looking in at the door as she went by, she saw her mother in the room taking off her bonnet. My poor child, where did you think we had gone? she called out. Papa was kept in town till the second train, and that was late, so we have only just got back. You must be half-starved waiting so long for your dinner. I hope Nurse gave you some bread and milk. Why, what day is it? stammered the amazed Ellie day? Why, Ellie, have you been asleep? It's today, of course, Thursday. What did you think it was? Ellie rubbed her eyes, bewildered. Had the time which seemed to her so long really been so short? Had no one missed her? It was her first lesson in the comparative unimportance of the individual. A sense of her own foolishness seized her. Mamma looked so sweet and kind. Why had she imagined her cruel? "'Did you go to sleep, dear?' repeated Mrs. Wade. "'Yes, Mamma," replied Ellie humbly. "'I did, but I'm waked up now.'" End of Section 8 Recording by Claire